For the past 12 years, Benjamin Netanyahu served as Israel's prime minister, fighting wars and wars between wars against Hamas and Hezbollah, opposing President Obama's attempts to propitiate Iran's rulers who openly threaten Israelis with genocide, attempting to block blows from the United Nations, an organization that spends inordinate amounts of time and money slandering Israelis, engaging in palavers with Vladimir Putin, who has now re-established Russia as a power in the Middle East, not convincing Palestinian Authority Mahmoud Abbas to seriously negotiate with him, yet managing to establish Israeli diplomatic relations with a growing number of nations, including, under the Abraham Accords, Arab nations. Netanyahu has now been replaced by a diverse coalition of opponents on both the right and the left, and including an Arab Muslim party. How will the new gang cope with Israel's multiple threats and challenges? FDD Senior Vice President Jonathan Schanzer has just returned from the Holy Land. He'll tell you and me what he saw and heard here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Jonathan, start maybe by telling us the pandemic situation in Israel, because Israel did spectacularly well in terms of getting its citizens vaccinated, but now it seems to be... I will tell you that, that getting into the country was no small feat. Um, getting the permission to go, getting the tests uh, before you go, the tests once you arrive, the additional tests once you arrive. But the amazing thing was that once I did get on the ground, uh, there was a sense uh, that they had beaten the, the virus, fully leveraged the vaccine. Um, and uh, I got into the cab from the airport and I said, well, I'm still under quarantine, so I'm still you know, wearing a mask. And my driver said, did you get a vaccine? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you don't need a mask. Um, yeah. and, 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 and you would think that that would be the case. But by the time I left, um, everyone had masks back on. There was a clear sense that the virus was making a comeback, a resurgence. Um, and um, there was a sense of fear. Now, I, I have to say, I think Israel still is probably doing better than most. They're trying to annihilate the virus. I'm not sure that's possible, but we will find out if there's any one country that can do it because of the small population, because of the high vaccination rates. We'll see whether they have the ability to overcome. Yeah, I, I, look, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just, but my two cents, a, a flu virus of, of, of this sort cannot be annihilated. Um, it's likely to be around for a long time. To, the, the, the effort to annihilate it, you probably know this on the last Yes, you've got the Delta variant. Yes, it's more transmissible. Yes, you have higher numbers getting the, the virus, but they're not dying in higher numbers from the virus. They're not even being hospitalized at much higher numbers. Um, 
it's it, 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 the idea that everybody has to be masked or that the masks necessarily help because the masks may keep you from aerializing uh, your your germ the germs if you have them, but it doesn't prevent others from other germs from and, and viruses from getting through your mask. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but that's my understanding. Yeah, I, look, I th I think that's probably right. I do think that um, you know some of it is in Israel. It's political, much as it is here. Um, and you have a new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who is trying to demonstrate that he is able uh, to handle the vaccines and the virus and everything else, as well as his predecessor, who you know I think by all accounts Netanyahu deserves a lot of credit. Uh, for vaccinating Israel as quickly as, as he did and getting the country back to whatever normal is these days. So I think, I think Bennett is trying to, um, to compete with his predecessor in that way. But I think you're right. There is probably, there will be diminishing returns on whatever effort is mounted right now because this is man versus nature and nature will likely win. Well, nature, although I would also argue that the Chinese, um, Played with Mother Nature in ways they, they that, that they should not have engineered but, nature. Let's say engineered nature in ways that, that I think they, they they should not have. But overall, your cab driver might be somebody who should think of running for prime minister. It seems like he's a sensible guy. All right. Speaking of Netanyahu, what do you know about how has he taken this loss and, and what is he doing now? Well, he's gone into full opposition mode. Uh, from everything that we understood from people that were close to him, um, this was a man who was not taking defeat easily. Um, he had been in, in power since 2009. I think in many ways he saw himself as invincible. Uh, certainly the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. He's made his mark undeniably um, on Israeli history, on Jewish history, if you will. Um, and uh, I think he very much left office feeling as if there was unfinished business. He not only had the pandemic, which I think, he, again, he had, I think, handled relatively well, all things considered. Um, and but I also you have to remember that this was a man who had devoted his life to countering Iran. And of course, Iran right now is at a, a, a really crucial moment. Uh, both in terms of the transition of leadership and potentially crossing over into the nuclear realm um, and all the negotiation that's going on within the Biden administration. So I think he felt like there was a lot that he still needed to do. What was really amazing to me, just as I reflected on his uh, time in office, is yes, he certainly, um, let's just say, ruffled some feathers among Democratic administrations. Um, his close relationship with Donald Trump certainly um, was a divisive issue, uh, to put it mildly. But this is a man who, A, um, was able to bring his country out of the COVID crisis, or as close as one can. Um, he uh, avoided major wars during his time in office. He made Israel a stronger power, both through conventional means and cyber means. His legacy will be a, um, a positive one, no matter how one looks at it, even with some of the controversy. Um, the question is really, is he ready to stand down after all these years or will he mount another comeback? Um, and, and will he try to make another long run as prime minister? I'm not sure that the White House will be willing to give him even 
a an opening right now. And that that's really one of the, the more interesting dynamics is I believe this White House is doing everything that it can to placate the current government in Israel to make sure that Netanyahu does not make a comeback because of how much they did not like him. You know, uh, let me just, just try this on you. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think Netanyahu transformed Israel in many ways uh, for, the, for the better. It's a stronger country. It's a more prosperous country. It fought wars, didn't shy from them, but it didn't overfight its wars. Uh, he, he was always reluctant to deploy ground troops. Uh, I think in most cases, that was the right decision. Uh, but it's probably good for Israel to test other leaders. He was he was in charge for for a very long time, as you say, since two thousand and nine, and he had an earlier stint as prime minister. Maybe it's good for others to sort of get this experience, and maybe it's better that they get this experience with him in the wings, if you will, because if if, if they do well, if, if if they perform marvelously, that's great. Then Israel can be led by more than one person. If they don't perform so well then there he is, you know, hopefully tanned, rested, and ready. Well, I think that's right. And I think the, the observation that democracy should not have leaders that, um, you know, go much past kind of what we would consider two terms here in the U.S., I think is a legitimate argument. I think the fact that he was in power for as long as he was, uh, look, you know, uh, 11, 12 years is a long time to be the leader of a country. You need some fresh blood. You need to have young leaders um, in waiting in the wings. And I think Netanyahu did a, an admirable job of sidelining a lot of them, but I don't know if that was healthy for the democracy. So here you have Bennett. Bennett is, you know, it's interesting because, you know- Let me just mention one other thing on that. And that is, then I want to talk about Bennett. I want to talk about Yara Lapid, but one other point, it's not just Netanyahu. It's also all the people who advise a given prime minister. So last week here in Washington, I met with a key advisor to the new government. And she was very bright, but one could see that she hadn't quite done this before. You're getting a whole new generation and a whole new cast of characters coming in to support this new government. One hopes um, that they will be learning skills from taking this responsibility that they otherwise would not have. And that means you have, you know, more players on the bench who can, you know, go in and and and, and get on the field. Oh, absolutely. And, and I will say that actually one of the really nice developments that I've seen is the rise of Israel's new national security advisor, uh, Eyal Hulata. Uh, this is a guy that came out of the ranks of the Mossad, a very, very sharp guy. And he is being given a tremendous opportunity. Um, and I, I think this is exactly the kind of person that you want to see rise up through the ranks. So hopefully we'll see more of those. We have some very talented people surrounding Yair Lapid, the foreign minister. Um, and and I, I think you suggest others that are being cultivated. Maybe they're not um, quite where they need to be yet, but with a little bit of practice, you'll have another generation of people who are able to execute foreign policy um, and to work closely with the United States. And just, you know, give us a thumbnail sketches of the, of the key characters. Let's start with Naftali Bennett. He's, he's a former ally of Bibi's. Um, he's a, the leader of the decidedly right of center, Amina party. What would you say about him? 
Well, he's, it's an interesting um, story that, that that's happening right now in real time. And that is, that this is a man who received six votes um, out, out of 120 in the Knesset. So certainly not a political powerhouse when one considers um, the sort of um, the support that he got from the Israeli public. Um, he was lured into the position of prime minister by Yair Lapid, Israel's um, the second prime minister in this rotation, um, currently the foreign minister. And Lapid was a heat-seeking missile. He only <laughs> wanted one thing, and that was to depose Netanyahu. He is the kingslayer. Um, and he was so determined to slay the king that he even decided to forego being prime minister first in this rotation. So um, he allows Bennett to come in. Bennett has, in the eyes of the far right anyway in Israel, has betrayed their cause. He's working with a center left foreign minister. He's working with the Labor Party. He's working with the, uh, the Ram party, the, this new Arabic, uh, Arab uh, Israeli party that's emerged. And so he's, and, and he's a pragmatist. This is a man that's trying to basically balance all of the needs and desires of just about every um, element of the Israeli public. And it's a high wire act that he's on because quite frankly, it's really difficult to balance all of the demands of all the different parties that are part of this dog's breakfast coalition that we see in Israel. I mentioned the Yamina party is right of center. The Likud, obviously, is right of center. In what way, if any, does Yamina differ from Likud? I would say that Yamina is a little bit more um, associated with the settler movement, um, the, the development of Judea and Samaria, uh, the West Bank. This is, I think, probably where he is most known. Um, and where he's, I don't want to say he's, he's wavering, but he certainly doesn't seem as committed to the settler agenda, if you will. Um, and again, the fact that he's now working with labor and merits and, and Yeshatid, you know, uh, by all accounts, center left and further left parties is a shock to his supporters, uh, but I think, you know, you have to remember that when people get into politics in Israel, they get in because ultimately they want the top job, or at least the, the ambitious people do. Bennett always was ambitious. You always got a sense that he had his eye on the prize. And I think he saw an opportunity here. If it doesn't work, this is probably the end of the line for him. I can't imagine he's going to be able to um, recreate his image and, to, you know, start again with the, with, with the right wing in Israel. I don't think he'd be welcome as a centrist or you know left-leaning leader in Israel. So it's quite possible that he goes back to the high-tech sector after this and decides to make some money. If he's able to make a real go at this and to extend things for another couple of years, kudos to him. Again, I will say that I think the Biden White House is very eager to keep him in power because they don't want Bibi. So this is probably his greatest asset right now that he has this kind of leverage with the United States. Yeah, there's one thing I just want to want to digress for a second. We, the word settler, uh, the Israelis use it, so it's hard not to use it. But of course, Israel's enemies use it to mean settler, colonialism, apartheid, all of that. Among the people who live beyond the armistice lines from the first war uh, to wipe Israel off the face of the earth just after it proclaimed its independence, 
there are some who are very radical, um, probably, and I'm not probably, and anti-Palestinian, and some would say, I want to live with my Palestinian neighbors in what I still consider to be Judea. I don't accept that Jordan, after it conquered Judea and Samaria, gets to rename it and say, this has never been Jewish territory. Some of the places where there are Jewish communities, there were Jewish communities that were expelled uh, by the Jordanians or expelled during the, the war. Some may not be. But I just want to—I just want to, to clarify because it's—it's it's been a problem of Israel. Who I, I've always thought Israelis don't know how to do communication strategically the way their enemies do. That if you say settler, you say, "Oh, well, they don't belong there um, by definition." Yet uh, to, to, there are a lot of places where there are Jewish communities and where there's an argument that there should be. We have many Arab villages, many Arabs living in Israel. About twenty percent of the population. The idea that there couldn't be a Palestinian state. Also, that has Jewish communities, either as resident aliens or as citizens or who knows what status. I just don't want to accept the idea that I know, of course, if there's to be a two-state solution, there will be Arabs and Muslims in Israel, but there cannot be any Jews, no Jews whatsoever in a Palestinian state. That, that, can, that is not to be tolerated. Well, I think that's exactly the position that uh, someone like uh, Naftali Bennett has embraced over the years, um, and it has an appeal with within Israel. And and certainly, I don't think that it's a black and white issue. Um, I, I've always uh, asserted that not all settlements are created equal. Uh, some may be more provocative than others for lots of different reasons. Uh, but certainly, this is a complicated issue. And I think you know, just to take the um, recent example of, of Ben and Jerry's and the idea of boycotting, divesting, or sanctioning uh, Israel writ large for what is a gray area in in terms of international law and Israel's right to build uh, or to settle in these areas. These are issues that are far from settled, and and um, and I don't believe that um, uh, that anyone has a monopoly on truth here. Yeah, I just just to point out, and this is a point regarding Ben and Jerry's and their boycott, the idea that a Jew in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem is a, a, an, a, an imperialist settler who shouldn't, who must not be allowed to eat chunky monkey in that area, strikes me as just as purely ludicrous. All right, we're moving on. So, so Yer Lapid, Yer Shatid party, he is certainly left of center. Um, how, how does he get along with Naftali Bennett? What, what do they what do they what do they disagree on? What do they agree on? Well, first of all, I, I think it's important to note that that Yair Lapid is is not a sort of um, uh, merits voting crunchy ultra peacenik um, politician in Israel. Uh, this is a guy who is center left. He, I think, would like to engage in uh, two-state diplomacy, uh, but doesn't want to give away uh, all of Israel for free. Um, he views the Iran threat, uh, the Hamas threat, the Hezbollah threat, in very much the same way as the security establishment, and very much the same way as the Israeli right. Um, I think you have some small discrepancies on two-state Diplomacy, but not significant ones between uh, between Lapid and Bennett. And um, but I also think that that's just not the priority right now, not for anyone. 
Um, you know, I think they have much bigger fish to fry. They've got a recent war in Gaza that uh, has, I think, changed some of the security calculus, and we can talk about that. You got rocket fire out of Lebanon, including the first rocket claimed by Hezbollah in, I think it's something like 15 years. Um, so deeply concerning there. You got obviously Iran and it's dashed for a bomb. You've got the war between wars. All of these things, I think, are far more important uh, to Lapid than the idea of getting back to a two-state solution paradigm um, and, and one in which you know, you still have a Palestinian leader in the West Bank who's just by all accounts, not ready, not prepared, and not legitimate. So I, I, I see this as a third or fourth tier priority in this new Israeli government. And so I think it's for that reason, Bennett and Lapid on security issues get along pretty darn well. Now, also in this coalition, you have Meretz and you have Ram, as I'm pronouncing it, the, the, the Arab party, right? Do they see eye to eye, uh, at least on this? I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I was invited to a meeting with a, a major Arab leader in Washington. I won't say who was off the record. But what he made very clear was that Arab leaders are, use his word, fed up with Mahmoud Abbas because they see that he is not going to negotiate. He's not going to make peace. He's not open to that as a possibility. They know whatever they may have thought of Netanyahu, whatever they may think of the Israelis in, in terms of the Palestinian conflict, however much they may side with or sympathize with the Palestinians, they know that Mahmoud Abbas is, is not the man who's going to solve this problem. He's, what, 85 years old now, and I think he knows that he, he sees his legacy as that for his entire life, like Arafat, he resisted Israel's existence as best he could, and uh, and he's not going to make peace uh, with Netanyahu, but he's also not going to make peace with somebody like Naftali Bennett or even Yair Lapid. Yeah, look, I, I think that assessment is um, in large part, um, or let's just say in some part, what drove the um, Gulf Arab states, Sudan, Morocco, to make peace with Israel. I think they realized that a Iran is a is a common threat, but b this idea of waiting until um, a boss comes around or to, until the Palestinian Authority comes around to make peace, there's no holding anyone's breath here. Everyone knows what's going on. You have a system that's been in, in total disarray. I think that what we're seeing right now, there is an interesting change in dynamic after the recent Gaza conflict. And that is that there was a realization that the PA was completely sidelined. It was sidelined by Hamas during the conflict, but I think there's also a realization that there are people that are protesting on the streets against the corruption of the Palestinian Authority. There is a sense that the PA can't deliver much for the Palestinian people on any level right now, um, financially, politically, or otherwise. And so there is a new effort underway uh, by the White House with some participation from Israel maybe a little bit from Jordan and Egypt as well, to try to rehabilitate the PA. And I have to say, I'm not sure what the goal is other than to serve as a bulwark uh, against Hamas. Um, there is no deliverable that I can see right now with Mahmoud Abbas still at the helm. Once we see a change in leadership, I think it's possible to start to rebuild the PA in a way that could 
um, rehabilitate a two-state discussion, maybe. But for right now, you have a PA that is just entirely illegitimate with a boss, as you mentioned, you know, in his 80s, not well, not um, really not motivated to accomplish much of anything, not willing to work with his Israeli counterparts. So the question is, what is it exactly that we're trying to pursue? In my view, we should be looking for, I don't want to call it a regime change, but at least we should be thinking about how to um, prepare for succession in the PA and perhaps even how to encourage it. And that's not something that we see coming out of Washington at all. We don't see it coming out of Israel at all. And if we're to be honest, there is a crisis that is likely looming because Mahmoud Abbas does not have a successor. There is no clear structure in place for when he leaves the scene. And that could create quite a mess. Talk about the, uh, the Arab party that's part of this coalition. Israel has had Arab members of the Knesset in the past, but never as part of, as, as I, if I'm correct, as part of a governing coalition. And part of what's amazing about this and shouldn't go unnoticed, there is nowhere else in the Middle East, as far as I'm aware, uh, maybe Tunisia, you could argue, where that, uh, that an Arab Muslim politician can be elected in a free and fair election and serve in the government. Yeah, I mean, so you have this um, Mansour Abbas is his name. He's the head of the Ram Party. No He's pin not, to Mahmoud Abbas, we should say. Not that I'm aware of. Um, <laughs> but at, at any rate, you've got this guy who is an Islamist by all accounts um, and not, not particularly friendly to uh, right-wing politics in Israel. But uh, this is a man who's decided that he wants to step um, out from the sidelines and he wants to get in the game. And I have to say, I, you know, I, I sort of joked at the time that this was the fifth normalization agreement um, we saw in the region, that this idea that Arab uh, Israelis can and should be part of the uh, decision making within the coalition, I think this is a crucial moment for Israel. It, uh, he crossed the Rubicon. He's now in the game. He's shown the Arab, uh, the rest of the Arab population in Israel, roughly 20% of the population that it's not taboo any longer to engage in coalition politics, to be involved directly in the allocation of the Israeli budget. And I think the likely outcome of this is twofold. On the, on the one hand, you could see some real ugly uh, uh, inter-Israeli uh, political wrangling in the event of another conflict with Hamas or with Hezbollah. I think that Ram could hinder uh, the Israeli efforts to respond, or you might see at least a, a, the collapse of a coalition in the event of a conflict. But at the same time, you have a guy who can now begin to advocate for how the budget will be allocated to the Arab sector. This, in, with any luck, will address some of the challenges that we saw during the most recent conflict, where you saw these inter, uh, or rather these mixed cities, as they call them, uh, where there are Arab uh, residents and Jewish residents living together. And we saw people coming out into the streets and protesting and, um, and actually engaging in riots during the conflict. Some of that, I think, has to do with political challenges, which we can talk about. But part of it also has to do with the economic challenges. And so it's quite possible that with Rom stepping in, can begin to address some of those issues. Yeah. There have been... A 
missile attacks from both Hamas and from Hezbollah, uh, we believe from Hezbollah and from Lebanon, maybe other actors there, including Palestinians in, in Lebanon. And, and the Israelis have retaliated as they generally do to say, you can't do this. You can't attack our people uh, with impunity. My supposition is that Mansour Abbas and Ram have not said, don't do that or we leave the government. They've sort of said, yeah, well, um, they're not going to necessarily praise it, but they're not going to oppose it, um, which strikes me as actually more important than has been recognized. No, I think that's right. Um, although we don't know what's being said behind closed doors. We don't know how tenuous this uh, coalition is um, when they begin to address some of these tougher security issues. But we are seeing Israel respond immediately to these arson balloon attacks. We've seen strikes in Gaza, um, and it doesn't appear to be upsetting the coalition. We've seen Israel respond directly to the rocket fire coming out of Lebanon. Um, and again, it is not disrupting the daily functioning of the coalition. I do think that we'll just need to wait and see if there is a wider conflagration in the near future. That's where I think you know we could find some challenges. Um, but then again, we may see that uh, the Ram Party says, "Look, you know, we understand we're, we're responding in self-defense." I think it'll be really interesting to just see whether they see the security of the state of Israel in the same light as some of the more senior partners. The uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party here in the U.S. Um, did not like, does not like Benjamin Netanyahu. That's been clear. The far left, how do they see this new government? Do we have any sense of that? And how does this new government see the left wing of the of, of the Democratic Party, which is, you know, purports to be very pro-Palestinian? I don't think you're pro-Palestinian if you tell Palestinians uh, not to normalize relations and continue to sacrifice generations of children um, in order to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. But that's 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 a minority opinion on my part. Um, some call it the, the Hamas caucus of the U.S. Congress. Any sense of, uh, of how that caucus is viewed and how that caucus views the new government? Well, I, I can say that there is a lot of concern in Israel with the officials that we met uh, about bringing Israel back into a bipartisan space. I actually still believe that there is significant bipartisan support for Israel um, in both the House and the Senate. I think that speaking up um, uh, in defense of Israel is a dangerous thing to do if you're a Democrat right now, given the vociferous voices that we hear from the Hamas caucus, as you call it. Um, but I will say that the Israelis are doing a lot of thinking right now about how to re-engage. I will say Lapid um, has spent a lot of time doing outreach to Democrats in Congress. He was actually, during the Bibi years, uh, was spending a lot of time on the Hill letting people know that Bibi was not Israel and that Israel was not Bibi and that um, there were lots of areas where they could work together. My, my concern is that after the Gaza war, we saw some of these initiatives, the Bernie Sanders initiative, uh, for example, to halt weapons sales to Israel. Now, you would think that when you hear that, it means, well, we're, we're going to stop selling offensive weapons to Israel. But that's actually not what was being talked about, right? 
one of the things that they were talking about withholding were these Tamir interceptors, the, the interceptors for Iron Dome, which saved hundreds, if not thousands of Israeli lives during the recent conflict. But even that doesn't even, I think, explain how crucial this system is um, when we think about what the impact would be if Hamas started landing direct hits in Israel, hitting strategic targets. Um, you can only imagine how the IDF would have been pressured to respond with a much wider war, one that could have been devastating for Gaza. And so this idea that somehow we should be withholding these Tamir interceptors, I found to be remarkably cynical, even for Senator Bernie Sanders. And then the other thing that they were trying to withhold were precision-guided munitions. And, and even there, yes, those are offensive weapons, but what they do is they allow Israel to respond to aggression with precision. So rather than destroying an entire building, they can fire a, a, uh, a, a weapon into a window to take out a terrorist who is you know, uh, ordering uh, attacks against Israel without destroying the entire building and with minimal collateral damage. And so basically what Israel has been relying upon the United States for are these weapons that help contain the conflict. And this idea that somehow that the Hamas caucus would want to deprive Israel of that, I think really does underscore the cynical nature of their approach. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, I want to point out that and the UN is, it has been for years, of course, just awful. The senior UN official the other day uh, was talking about Iron Dome and, and, and Israel's use of it and said, well, it basically said it's unfair that Hamas in Gaza doesn't have an Iron Dome to shoot down Israeli missiles. And of course, what the, the Hamas has something better than Iron Dome. Hamas can guarantee that another Israeli missile will not be fired on Gaza tomorrow, next week, ever. All they have to do is not attack Israel because Israel never attacks except in response and retaliation to an attack. And yet the UN, senior UN official doesn't, doesn't seem to understand that. And I'm afraid there are a lot of people around the world who don't understand that position. Well, I think that's 100% right. But I think the other part of this that needs to be said is that, you know, when people say that they think it's unfair that Israel has Iron Dome, what they're basically saying is that they believe that there should be equal numbers of casualties on both sides. And in other words, if only more Jews and if only more Israelis died during this most recent conflict, well, then it would have been fair. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that logic. Yeah. Um, also important to discuss this new coalition government. Does it view the threat from the Islamic Republic of Iran any differently? Does it see the JCPOA, Obama's um, nuclear deal with Iran's theocrats any differently than Bibi Netanyahu did? You know, uh, it's a good question. Um, I think there was a sense that I heard from some officials that the JCPOA was a fait accompli uh, and that they would have really no choice but to try to improve the JCPOA on the margins. Um, what's interesting is that that is not the official policy of this government. And I think that's a good thing because um, 
you know, if Israel begins to cede ground there, well, then how can congressional Republicans or opponents of the JCPOA be holier than the Pope? And I think that it's probably smart for Israel to withhold. The other thing, of course, is that the JCPOA does not appear to be a fait accompli right now. Um, it's complicated. It's gotten uh, more challenging with Raisi's victory and uh, intransigence on the part of the Islamic Republic. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how the Israelis proceed here. The other thing that I'm- And let me just, let me just suggest, in case I may miss it, when you speak about Raisi, you're talking about Ibrahim Raisi, who is the new president, Islamic Republic of Iran, um, chosen in a not very um, free and fair election. And he, is, he has a long history as a mass murderer, very, very extreme in his views, but very close to the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. Um, this is not somebody that the administration can say, oh, he's sort of a moderate, we can get along with him. And by the way, it's not clear that he or the Supreme Leader actually wants to get back into the JCPOA. They may see it as being, they, they, they just may not be interested that we, we don't, or they may only be interested if the pot is sweetened considerably by the Biden administration. And there may be a limit to how, how much the Biden administration is willing to sweeten the pot, at what point it becomes clear to everybody that we're talking appeasement, we're not talking about diplomatic success. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I would say that already what we've seen is a significant amount of appeasement. Um, but regardless- uh, <laughs> Right, I know, I'm not disagreeing. Right. Um, but regardless, I mean, I, I think it's become more difficult for the administration uh, with this new um, leader at the helm. So, um, so yeah, I would say that there was a bit of strategic confusion there for the week or so that I was in Israel, but I think they appear to have stiffened up a bit. Um, and uh, they don't appear willing to cede a whole lot with um, with the administration on this. Also, again, I think the fact that um, this administration really wants the Bennett government to succeed mm. um, and to not fall, and uh, they don't want to see the return of Netanyahu, one does get a sense that they can't push this government too far on Iran or anything else for that matter. So the Israelis, I think, are able to stand pat. They're able to stay firm on a number of their key positions. And I think that's a positive. Again, you don't want to cede ground if you're Israel, if what you're trying to do is to hold the line for the rest of the international community to see. Right, I'm not gonna call this a lightning round, but there's a number of subjects I wanna, I wanna go through before we conclude. One is I know you went down and visited with the Southern Command. I'm just curious to know what you saw there. Yeah, we, we took a, a, a remarkable trip um, right along the Gaza fence border. We uh, saw the uh, really how close the Ashkelon uh, gas facility was. Remember, there was a large explosion there that took place within the first few days of the May 2021 war. Um, I, I had raised the question as to whether that was perhaps a precision guided munition that Hamas had, or perhaps a drone, as it turns out, they were just extremely lucky firing a mortar. Um, mm. You know, mortars are very difficult yeah. to aim, but they got one through and, and mortars are exceedingly difficult to neutralize as opposed to the rockets, which have a different trajectory. The mortars are much shorter in range. So that was extremely um, 
lucky for Hamas, unlucky for Israel. Um, I did get a, a sense, um, you know, one thing that was <laughs> was very clear to me at the beginning of the conflict, this was not about Sheikh Jarrah, that real estate dispute. This was not about some, you know, Ramadan related thing. Um, when I went to the command center, you could see all of these massive screens all up along the walls and, you know, the computer systems that were tracking every possible threat um, along the Gaza border. And we spoke to the people who were standing watch in the days leading up to the conflict. And they all said the same thing. We could see the preparations days in advance. We could see that Hamas was preparing for this conflict. And we knew that it was only going to be a matter of days but it really had very little to do with some of the other things that were being reported as the catalyst. Hamas had simply determined that it was time to launch a war. All right, that's the southern border. I'll talk about the northern border for a minute. You both, um, Lebanon uh, and, uh, and, and, and Syria. Lebanon, uh, I mean, we need to mention, Lebanon is a, a state in freefall. It, it's, it is clearly a failing state. It's very hard to see. And, We've done at FDD some pretty good research on why economically it can't be bailed out with just you know a couple of checks written by the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund or the French or or anybody else. It would logically the last thing the people of Lebanon need is another war with Israel. But the logic I'm utilizing here is not the logic of, of Hezbollah. No, I think that's right. Although there are a lot of questions right now, I think that we all have about some of the rockets that were fired during the, the war in May and some of the subsequent rockets that have been fired since. Um, without um, spoiling it, um, I have a book coming out uh, in October through FTD Press where I address the question of whether Hamas uh, had established some uh, military outposts in Lebanon that were being used to draw Israel into a second front. Um, and whether this had been done in coordination with Iran and possibly Turkey. Um, I have some documentation that we'll be able to share soon on this, but um, suffice it to say, not every rocket fired out of Lebanon was being fired by Hezbollah. It's possible that the majority of them were being fired by Palestinian groups that would like nothing more than to draw uh, Israel into that second uh, front. And um, the question is, was this being done in coordination with Iran? Was it being done in coordination with Hezbollah? We don't know all the answers to this. What we do know is that Hezbollah has now claimed credit for at least one rocket fired out of Lebanon over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's the first one that we've seen in something like 15 years. Um, it's extremely dangerous because you know Israeli uh, security establishment folks are now saying that they've lost deterrence that Hezbollah does not seem to fear a, uh, a military response from Israel. My concern about all of this is, I think, twofold. One, we've talked a lot in the past about precision guided munitions that Hezbollah has been accumulating from Iran. These are strategic weapons that can be used against high value targets in Israel, very precise, larger payload, really, really dangerous when you think about um, what the next conflict might look like in addition to the 150,000 rockets that Hezbollah has amassed. That is a very messy conflict that um, could be on our horizon. 
And then there's the other part of this, which is, as you mentioned, the looming collapse of Lebanon. Uh, economically, it is in a tailspin. Politically, it is um, also in a tailspin. I mean, they just can't, they can't create a new government. They can't buy one. Um, and so you could have the potential for something that looks like Somalia on the Mediterranean uh, in the very near future. And so the Israelis would like uh, to forestall that as much as they possibly can. And yet here we have more and more rockets being fired out of Lebanon, Israel having really little, little choice but to respond. And so I think everyone in the North is kind of holding their collective breath waiting to see where this goes. Okay, then we go to Syria where the Israelis have for a long time been using mostly, uh, well, using air power to prevent the Islamic Republic of Iran from setting up Syria as yet another front against Israel. Uh, the concern now is that um, the Russians, Vladimir Putin, when I say the Russians, I mean Vladimir Putin, um, he's turned a blind eye to Israel doing that even though he has a strong presence in Syria. It's not clear how he views this now, and if he if he's making going to at least make this more complicated for the Israelis to continue to prevent uh, Tehran from from setting up bases uh, facing Israel from southern Syria, which is uh, actually a, a vital national security interest for Israel. It is, and and look, Putin continues to play a um, a murky role, to put it mildly. Uh, we actually met with a um, senior diplomat who knew Putin rather well, an Israeli diplomat. And um, there was really no doubt in anyone's mind that this is a man who was um, trying to exploit this for Russia's benefit uh, on the world stage, not particularly interested in Israeli security, um, not particularly interested in curbing Iranian ambitions uh, in, in this country, even though some right now in Syria have apparently been floating this idea that somehow Russia could marginalize Iran and become a responsible stakeholder in Syria. I think the likelihood of that is decidedly low. Um, what I think is probably worth noting is that the so-called war between wars, these attacks that Israel has been carrying out against Iranian assets all around the region, but in Syria, certainly, um, you know, we're seeing it quite a bit. And that is, th these attacks continue um, under the Biden administration and under the Bennett administration. These were hallmarks of the BB years um, with Trump. And the idea that Israel would continue these attributed and unattributed attacks um, under new leadership, I think is important. And it's also important to note that the Biden administration appears to sort of be shrugging at the fact that they're happening as well. So I think that's a very positive thing, but maybe a little negative to point out here is that the war between wars continues in other places as well. And so we continue to see things going boom on the high seas um, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, we saw this attack on the Mercer Street, this um, uh, vessel owned by an Israeli. Um, and Iran has been uh, widely accused, including by the United States and other Western powers of carrying out a drone attack against this vessel. It's all taking place in the context of Israel attacking Iranian assets as well. An interesting difference, though, is that Israel continues to attack military targets, um, and it's not attributable, very hard to pin it on the Israelis. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got the Iranians who are going after civilian vessels, civilian assets, 
and um, they're getting pinned for it. So the war between wars continues. Is um, the tension is undoubtedly rising? Certainly with um, Raisi coming to power. Certainly with the Iranians refusing to um, cede to U.S. demands, even as they try to placate and appease further. So uh, the tensions continue to rise in the region. Um, a few words also, you should say, about Israel's other immediate neighbors, Jordan and Egypt. Uh, both countries, Israel has formal peace agreements with. They have close military-to-military -military relations. Israel is important to both. Uh, Jordan needs Israeli energy, needs Israeli uh, water. I think Egypt needs some of that too. Um, but of course, the populations of the two countries are by no means pro-Israeli. No, they're not. Although I have to say, Egypt has played a really interesting role over the last couple of months, maybe the last couple of years, if we're going to be honest, uh, trying to broker calm in Gaza. Um, Egypt was very critical of, of Israel during the most recent conflict. Um, but they also played a huge role in securing a ceasefire, um, working behind the scenes to try to uh, facilitate uh, prisoner swaps and to try to arrange for a longer term calm, uh, marginalizing the roles of Qatar and Turkey and Iran inside the Gaza Strip um, or doing the best that they could to do so. Um, and so I actually see Egypt as a fairly valuable, albeit ambivalent ally of Israel, they, uh, they have a good working relationship and I think it's a valuable one for Israel um, and for the United States for that matter. It's really interesting that you know, the Biden administration took a lot of credit for having brokered that ceasefire, but it was truly Egypt's ceasefire to broker. Um, and um, it was actually the way that uh, Abdel Fattah sisi the president of Egypt, found his way back into the good graces of this White House after really being um, marginalized for the first you know, four or five months. Um, Jordan is a far more complicated country. I have to say I'm very concerned about its trajectory. Um, you had that very strange uh, coup-ish plot that was um, disrupted a few months ago, um, but it was unclear whether it was truly a coup plot to begin with. Um, you have some outreach recently by Jordan to the Iranian axis, if you will, um, you know, talking about the transfer of gas from Iraq that would be of Iranian origin. Uh, all of these things do not bode well for the stability of the country. And, and in general, I have to say, um, they don't seem to understand that Israel is probably their guarantor of, sec of security um, and appear to be looking that gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. Um, and so I've got a lot of concerns about where the country's going next, but um, Israel, I think, is probably rightfully not prioritizing that at the moment, but at some point that bill may come due. Uh, China, uh, the People's Republic of China plays an interesting role here. They're, they keep making uh, Israel offers that are hard to refuse, offers to build infrastructure at a discounted rate, offers to be helpful in other ways. And yet, of course, since the Trump administration, America's relations with China have changed considerably, or maybe I should say America's perception of the People's Republic of China has changed considerably. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When, when I was in Israel, um, I, I had this really interesting conversation with someone who was close to the foreign minister. And um, 
they gave me the heads up that, that Israel was about to sign a letter through the Human Rights Council condemning China's treatment of the Uyghurs. And, you know, I thought to myself, this is amazing. This is tremendous that Israel is doing it. Um, and I, you know, I welcomed it. But when I saw the way that it was rolled out, I have, I, I really began to have some misgivings. And, and the reason is this, I think Israel now understands that it needs to take a more nuanced approach with China. China is a massive trade partner um, and is a burgeoning uh, superpower if it's not one already. Uh, it can't afford to alienate Beijing, but at the same time, it can't afford to alienate the United States. It's got this you know, really delicate relationship that it's trying to balance here, which, you know, and, and I think they're doing a good job in terms of, um, you know, what kinds of technology they sell to the Chinese, coordinating closely with the U.S. But this statement struck me as strange, not because it wasn't justified or even overdue, but because the Israelis were thinking that that would be enough to kind of signal to the United States that you know, they had chosen a side and that they were ready for some of the fallout that would come from Beijing, that maybe they would lose some business, they would, you know, be called onto the carpet, they might get a demarche. But they didn't really quite understand what they still don't, I think, is that this is great power competition, that Israel is going to have to do a lot more of these things if it wants to stay firmly on the side of the United States. And so they need a broader strategy one that I think they're still formulating um, that will include diplomatic, military, economic, and other components of these relationships. This is a complicated triangle. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that the Israelis have been through a number of phases in their relationship with the United States. And it's actually something I plan to write about. But you know, initially it was about the fight against communism, right? And that really dominated the relationship for decades. And then you had the fight for peace in the Middle East, right? An attempt to work with the United States to uh, achieve a two-state solution. And that lasted until between probably 1989, 1990 through 2001. Then in 2001, Israel became a core component of America's war on terrorism, if you will. And that lasted for, I don't know, 10, uh, 15 years. Somewhere around 2016, that all began to change. The war on terror began to wind down. We began to see a new focus on the part of the Trump administration to look at China in particular, but kind of preserving America's power in the world. And Israel is going to have to determine now what this next phase of the relationship will be with the United States. I think they're looking for clues as to how to do this it is not going to be easy. The China challenge is complicated. Uh, America is complicated. Our politics are extremely confusing to the Israelis. I heard one really wild story where there was uh, an American delegation that came to Israel to brief them on the domestic extremism threat here in the US. And the Israelis were kind of scratching their heads saying, why are we talking about this? This is not something that we can help you with. Um, but it was a priority for the United States. And so they're trying to figure out how to address American priorities right now in this very strange moment in history. 
And so I think this really is the challenge that awaits. So one more subject I want you to touch on, maybe the others you 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 want to talk about, but if not, we'll we'll end with this. Is that's the Abraham Accords because you worked on that the Abraham Accords in in a substantial way, and others at FDD worked on it in a substantial way. And if my intelligence sources are correct, you actually you also met with the new ambassador to Israel from the United Arab Emirates. That's not a, a sentence I ever expected to pronounce. I did, and uh, really, it was a fascinating meeting and a fascinating opportunity. Um, I would say that things appear to be going very well um, between the UAE and Israel. I think um, a final frontier will be mill-to-mill cooperation. I think that is something where the Emiratis are still a little bit ambivalent, and maybe for obvious reasons. Um, but in terms of trade, in terms of intelligence, in terms of kind of broader security architecture, I think things are going very well. Um, there was concern that this administration has not fully embraced the Abraham Accords. They don't um, use the phrase. That's right. And there is, I think, just a general concern that they aren't willing to celebrate it um, or to pursue it further, to try to push the envelope in terms of what's already been achieved. So I think there is a lot of work to be done still, but the good news is, is that I think the bilateral foundation for this relationship is strong. There really did appear to be a commitment on the part of the UAE. Um, the outreach has been significant, a really impressive ground game by this ambassador who's gone out and met Israelis, engaged directly with the Israeli public, um, haven't actually seen a whole lot with the Arab Israeli public, which you think maybe would be a, uh, a priority. But we are, um, I think, really looking at an interesting dynamic that I still believe can change the face of the Middle East if we're able to replicate it. And uh, the UAE is the right country to really take the lead here. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to report that I'll see. Thank you for listening to Foreign well. Policy. If you found the program well, worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, well Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to, to listen to your podcast. And this word to Send us your feedback, well. your questions, we your ideas your to foreignpolicy like at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until, then again, Until next time, again, I'm Cliff uh, May. Shanzer, and you've been listening to, all of you to Foreign Policy. Being with us today here on Foreign Policy.